somebody uh, took the privilege of giving me some directions up here and writing down which direction was north, which direction was south. <laughs> so thank you for whoever did that. Um, I was way off. It was <laughs> that was good. Uh, appreciate that very much. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Oldham Lane Church of Christ. It's a privilege to be together today as one body, gathering together in remembrance of one name, the name that is above every name. This has been, for the past several weeks and for the coming months, a series in practical Christianity. That's why all the titles are How To, How To, How To. And this week and next week, it's How To Take uh, Communion. You might think, well, it's pretty simple. You just peel off the thing and you, you pop the cracker. And there's a lot, more, a lot more to it than that. And as I've said every other week, I'll say it again, um, a good theology is a theology of practice. If this is the central thing that we are gathering to do each week, and I believe that it is, then we need to be reminded of how to do it and where to put our minds in the process of it. Jesus had performed what stands out as one of his greatest miracles there in Galilee, feeding the text says in John chapter 6 that 5,000 men, um, not, this isn't including women and children. So 5,000 men and, and the women and children besides were also fed. And it was from a simple five loaves of bread and two fish. It's amazing. I, I always try to envision what that must have looked like. How did it, how was the bread and the fish how did it grow? How did it, did he reach into the basket? And at, you know, every time he reached in, like a magician pulling something out of a hat, and you just, it just keeps coming? How was it? When he broke it off, did it immediately grow new bread and new? How did, I have no idea. But the thing that amazes us is that so many were fed from so little. And that's a significant thing. This was not, look, Jesus has power to solve world hunger. He could have done it. God could make bread appear on the ground every day for the rest of the existence of the world. Jesus could have done that. He didn't do that. He did this. He fed them. And after feeding them, he went on. And the people came and they wanted more. They wanted to be fed. And Jesus called them out for it. And he said, the only reason that you're here, because they tried to take him by force. They wanted him to be the king. He said, the only reason you're here is because you had your fill of bread. He said, don't work for the bread that perishes. Work for the bread that will give eternal life. And in John's gospel in particular, John uses this word, sign, Jesus' miracles are not called miracles. They're called signs because what does a sign do? Sign isn't the real thing, is it? A sign is, a signs point to things, right? This is a sign up here for me to know which direction is which. It's not the real thing, but a sign points to the real thing. And that real thing is so much deeper than we can fathom. This is what Jesus said 
Truly I say to you, and this was after there was a, there was a, a discussion that had gone on and, you know, at first the people were kind of fine with what Jesus is saying. And as the discussion goes, Jesus gets more and more specific in what he's saying. And after he says this, the people then turned away and said they no longer believed in him because they wanted bread. They did not want to feed on Jesus. But he said, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the reverse side of that, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And I want you to consider that For the past 2,000 years, millions of Christians have been being fed every single week by the one body of the one man, and we have no risk of it ever running out. There is no mountain of sin that will ever get so high that the body and the blood of Jesus can no longer feed There is no numerical quantity brought into the kingdom wherein God would then say, we're at capacity. God God could feed every man, every woman, and every child until the sun dies out with five loaves of bread and two fish, if he so chose. He didn't choose that. But God has chosen to feed, and to feed in the deepest and profoundest way every man and every woman through the body and the blood of Jesus the Christ, and he will do this for the rest rest of time. We're not at a risk of running short. I once heard Paul Washer speaking at a conference, and he, the message was somehow related to the gospel, and this young skeptic got up at the end, just a, a very young person, it was a really good question, they asked a question that I think a lot of people have, and they said, how is it, because the, we're always, in this culture, we're concerned with justice, and it, you know, if justice in our culture, really, we don't, we don't think of it this way, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, a lot of times, in fact, it's even worse than that, it's you take my eye, I'll, I'll kill you for it. That's our kind of justice in this world. And as we grow and grow, as we grow more and more into that kind of justice, you look on what happened here at Calvary, and the question is, how is this just that the sins of a murderer could be paid for by this man? And not just the sins of a murderer, but many of them, millions of them through history. How does the blood of one man, how does the death of one man pay for the life of all men? Pay for the sins of all men. It's an accounting question. It's a debits and credits question. How does it work that this one individual at Calvary and the blood that he shed and the life that he gave, how does that pay for every single person's sins? And there's no risk of shortage. And Paul Washer said, it's simply this. 
the life of that one man is worth more than the lives of every other man combined. That's how it works. The life of that one man, Jesus, is worth more than the lives of every man and every woman from the inception of the world until Jesus calls us home. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that when we went into the way of sin, he says, all together we have become, does anybody know, worthless. And yet God paid the highest price to bring us back. We are at no risk of a shortage. The life of Jesus paid for everyone. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this great and glorious mystery has been the central doctrine of the church since her origination 2,000 years ago. So central is this to our faith that we wouldn't have a faith apart from it. And because of its centrality, God has said, you must remember it. And God has put in place for us a memorial so that we don't ever forget it. God has commanded, remember it. I want you to remember this, do this. And we in the churches of Christ, we do it every single week. I think we do it for good reason. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it's just an incidental statement, but Paul makes the point that the church was gathered together on the first day of the week expressly for breaking bread. And if you track Paul's logic from 1 Corinthians 11 through the rest of the book, when he talks about coming together, it was on the first day of the week. He makes mention of that in relation to their giving, and we know what they were doing when they were coming together. They were coming together to take the Lord's Supper, even though they weren't doing it in the right way. Now, the advantage of so common a memorial is that we should never forget it. But the disadvantage of so unforgettable a memorial is that it may become too common. And so my purpose this week and next week is to simply put before us what the text says and to remind us of what we are called to do by the living God. Now, one of the things that you hear me say a lot um, it's, a, it's a key word in my language is the word gravity. I'll say that a lot. Just let me, let me give you the gravity of this. Let me give you the weight of this. And not the gravity and the weight so as to be a, uh, uh, so as to weigh down, but even Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke and the burden of Jesus Christ are not there to weigh us down, but they are there to ground us. And so one of the things that I often do is I'll point us back to, here is the weight of this. This thing that we do every week, I just said, the disadvantage of so unforgettable a memorial is that it may become too common. The last thing we ever want is for the Lord's Supper to be a casual thing. For this to be something that, yeah, that's just what we do. Pass the plate, or excuse me, pull open the wrapper. 
Eat the cracker and drink the thimble of grape juice. We do not want for this to become a casual thing. So let me remind you by way of the scriptures. These are the words of the living God. Let me remind you of the gravity of what we are privileged to do every single Sunday. It's a glorious privilege. And it is a blessing. And in it we find our lives. But this is what the text says. Paul, here's, here's the gravity of it. Speaking to Corinth, who we know, or most of us do, that there in Corinth, they weren't doing it right. But this is the gravity of what was at stake. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Okay? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Just consider that. The way in which they were partaking in the Lord's Supper, Paul says it would have been better for them not even to gather as a church. That's the gravity of it. It would be better to not gather and to not take it than to take it in the wrong way. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What's amazing about that is the body and the blood of the Lord is where we find our life. That's where guilt is removed. And yet to remember it in the wrong way or to do this in the wrong way heaps back on us the guilt. These are the words of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the degree is stunning. What do you mean, Paul, by judgment? In, in how far did that go? Well, he immediately he tells us. Look at this. Uh, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are, notice this, he's getting a little more specific. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And then, did I miss a, did I miss a text here? I guess I did. Go in your Bibles. I want you to see this. We're just going to, I'm going to pull, I'm going to make an audible here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This will be a good exercise for us to open up our Bibles anyways. 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 30. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Notice he just said, eats and drinks uh, without judgment, you know, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 30, that is why, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. <clears throat> so there at the Corinthian church, apparently there were, there was a kind, there was a kind of plague that had broken out where there was just a general bodily weakness and some were experiencing a bodily sickness, and some had even died. They'd, their lives had come to an end, and Paul gives the reason for it. He says it's because you weren't doing the Lord's Supper 
in the right way. Now, theirs was an extreme way that they were doing it, but that is the gravity of what's at stake. In John's gospel, so I mentioned at the beginning in John 6, Jesus says, look, when I fed the the multitudes with just this small amount of bread and the small amount of fish, what that really was about, what that really was about was you need to feed on me. You need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. And in that, Jesus said, you will have life. If you do this, you will have life. If you feed on my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life. And then there's just this staggering statement in John 13, 27, when it says this about Judas. So Jesus was giving the the Passover supper, and it says, after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus had said, when you feed on my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have life. And here you have Judas taking the morsel, and in that it says that Satan entered into him. What What do we gather from that? Well, what we gather from it is that there's no particular power in the bread itself, and there's no miraculous agency in the grape juice itself. It has a whole lot to do with what's happening internally. Those things are required and those things are symbolic and pointing to the big thing, but it's possible, as is shown in Corinth, and it's possible, as is shown with Judas, that you could take it in and it not be for life. So that's the gravity of it. So what I want to do is, this week I just want to give one one simple idea of what it means to take it in a worthy manner. My whole life, everywhere I go, it doesn't matter. If I'm, if I, you know, I was in Africa recently, if I was in Africa, if I've been all, you know, all over the United States, if I'm worshiping with Christians, there's a prayer that we pray, and we say, Lord, help me to take this in a worthy manner. Help us to take this in a worthy manner. Where are we getting that from? Well, that's biblical language. We're getting that straight from verse 27, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. It says, whoever eats in an unworthy manner uh, will be will be guilty. So we, we look at that and we say, well, there's a possibility of doing it in an unworthy way. And so we go to God and we say, well, help me to do it in a worthy, may, worthy way. But the question is, when we pray it to God, what are, we, what are we really asking him to do? He's given the instructions to us. He's told us, he's put before us that here was the unworthy way and here's what a worthy way would be. And so my question this morning is simply, what is a worthy manner? And a worthy manner this morning, this is it. A worthy manner is a united manner. A worthy manner before the Lord is that we would be one body. A worthy manner is that there would be no division A worthy manner is that we would be considerate of the body, that there would be a discerning of the body in the midst of the Lord's Supper. This, so let me show you this. I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is coming uh, from the text. And before we look at it, I want to just as by way of um, context, the Lord's Supper is not merely a private exercise. It's not just about me, myself, and I, and God. And then, you know, let me, let me just shut out the world. Everybody else, 
There's nothing else going on. It's just me and God. That's not, it's not solely, there are aspects of that that we're going to be looking at next week, but it's not solely a, a private thing. Coming out of the Reformation, Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the Catholic church building, and coming out of the Reformation, they were, the, the Lutheran church was starting to gather up ideas about what it meant to be doctrinally correct here and what it meant to be doctrinally correct here. And there became an obsession with doing things in accordance with the scriptures. And what happened was there, became, there, there began to be a bunch of infighting amongst the Lutherans with one another. They're arguing about this. They're arguing about third-degree matters. They're just, it was constant fighting. And so there was a movement called pietism, and pietism, what it was, it was, a, it was a good idea. It was a good mo- movement behind it. And the, the whole purpose of it was to try and get people re-centered on their personal devotion to the living God. Don't be so concerned about <clears throat> what everyone else is doing that you lose your own soul in the process. Your, your faith is to be sincere and it's to be between you and God. And so they called people inwards. But over time, <clears throat> the inward call began to be exclusive of the rest of the body. And this thing that we do is not a private enterprise. This is a corporate thing. And you can imagine what's happened in a society that is so profoundly individualistic. You can imagine what has happened then. You've got some who say, all I need is me and the Bible and the mountains, and I'll go and I'll do my thing by myself. And sometimes in the church, we have a symptom of it, and it's simply this, that we do not even look at each other during communion. We close our eyes or we go to a quiet place, and the thought of each other is shut out. Now, I'm going to talk next week. There is a degree of solemnity, my reflections. I'm picturing Jesus at Calvary. We're going to talk in depth about that next week. But that's not the whole of it. There's a consideration of what's happening here. Now, there at Corinth, they had many problems, but the central problem was division. This is what Paul says in chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that is, have the same mind, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he asks this most important question. He says, is Christ divided is there room in the body of Christ for factions is there room for what they had was there at Corinth were central heads there were figures that had the attention of the people there were leaders and and I don't think it was I don't think they were actually saying I follow Paul Paul was using that rhetorically what they were saying was they had a local guy and this is my guy and I follow him and so I'm going to go meet over at his table and that division was there You read through Corinthians, division was the biggest issue, and it was acutely observed in the Lord's Supper. And these are the instructions that Paul gives. First of all, notice notice this. It's not a private enterprise, it's a corporate one, which is why we, we don't, in the churches of Christ, we don't just say, hey, 
you know, everybody, take, you know, take, a, take some grape juice and some bread, and if you feel the need on a Tuesday night to, uh, to, you know, to have a reflection time, you can take the Lord's Supper there by yourself. We, we do it always together, and here's why. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you, notice this phrase, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So then, my brothers, notice this. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that, look at this, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now, there's a couple things. One is, we know that the Lord's Supper is a thing we do together. This is a corporate thing. But Paul's making the point that it's possible to do it corporately, but to not actually be united in it. It's possible to come together to be under the same roof, but it's possible in that to still be divided. And you saw that all through this text. Now, Here's where this hits home for us, and this is where I, I want us to focus our attention this morning as we're going to be getting ready to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. Look at what he says. This is in chapter 10, and there's <clears throat> something extremely important for our reflection time this morning. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. That word is this word, koinonia, which means fellowship. It's a partaking in this together. It's the deepest kind of unity that is conceivable because he's saying we are in drinking this, when we drink this, we are in fellowship with the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Something's happening there. I'm unified with Christ's blood. And then he says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation? That's the same word, fellowship, in the body of Christ. And notice what he says. Because there is one bread, and here's this statement. We who are many are one body. You see, when he go, remember back at the beginning in chapter 1 and verse 10 and following, when he says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? We who are many are one body. Just think about that. We came from every conceivable walk of life. We came from different nations. We came from different education levels. We came from, we came from every imaginable kind of background. And though we're many, we're one body. And this is happening in this communion that we do. In bringing these things in, some unifying measure is taking place. So pay attention to that word, that green word up there, one body, and look at what he says. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks... Without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this word for discerning means 
to evaluate by careful attention to the body. What does he mean by that? Give careful attention to the body. Well, what was happening there at Corinth with the body? It was divided. It was all split up. And he says, if, if you eat and drink with no regard for the body, there's no thought for the body, there's no consideration for the body, he says this is judgment. And that's why he says, so then, here's, here's the result of this, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, notice this, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Do this together. Do it with the same mind. Do it under the same roof. Discern the body. Think about the body. I remember hearing someone one time say that you shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper if you've sinned that week. And I thought, well, that means I'm never going to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper ever because I sin every week. In fact, I sin every day. One of my elders at Kingfisher said, on the contrary, when, I, when I've sinned, I, I want to tilt that thing as far back as I can and try to get every last drop of it. I need it. I need it. This, this Corinthians passage is not a passage about saying that the basis of partaking in the Lord's Supper is perfection. The basis of it is under one, I mean, with one mind, we're coming together and we're remembering the one body of Jesus. And there's a very powerful thing that happens in this. It, and it's that there's a Christian that's been a Christian for 50 years who's an elder now in the church or who's, who's one of the, the wise ladies in the church who gives instruction to the younger women, and, and they've been Christians for a long time, and they've been, they've been on the sanctification path for a very, very, very long time, and they're not the same person that they were when they were baptized. And then there's a person who literally just got baptized, and this may be their first time to ever partake in the communion. And when we come together in this way, what we're saying is the person who's been a Christian for 50 years and the person who's been a Christian for a day have an equal right at the table. We're at, we're, what we're doing is we're gathering around a table. This is about me and you and what Jesus did for us. We're remembering it and I'm remembering my brother right there is at the table because of the blood of Jesus. And the only reason I'm at the table is not because I get to study the Bible all week long and I know this book. No, it's because of the blood of Jesus the Christ. That's why I'm here. And so one super simple instruction when partaking in the, in the Lord's Supper is don't just close your eyes and close out. Look up and look around and consider the body. Think about the body. Discern the body. Look over there at your brother and, and your sister and marvel at the fact that God has brought all of us together under one roof. Now, let me close in this way. I, I know we, we sometimes we joke about the length of services and going to lunch and all those kinds of things, but in John chapter 6, when the people came to Jesus for food, Jesus said this. He said, you're, you're only here because you you're full of bread. You just want more physical food. 
But he said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And I'll say this, in a little while, y'all are going to go, you're going to go to Betty Rose, you're going to go to some local barbecue joint, or you're going to go to, you're going to go get some Mexican food or whatever. That's, that's good. But that food is going to pass through your system and it's going to perish. What we're doing right now and what we're about to partake in is a food that will not perish. We will live for all eternity because of this food. Praise God that it has been given for us. So when we go into this, look up and look around and marvel at the one table that we are sitting at and this one body that has been feeding us for millennia and that will continue to do so. What a great privilege. Let's stand and let's sing.